We're now learning from you about a facet of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, a man who terrorized this nation for 17 years with bombs, killing people and maiming people. Just intuitive terror that I felt, just where really? the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you know that something isn't right. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, writer, producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And Francie is unfortunately <clears throat> not here today. Yes, I know you'll have to dry your eyes, Matt, but yeah, Francie is, man, she's off doing a very exciting, very important, very cool project. And you'll hear about it soon, but we can't really disclose what it is at this point. But we do have an extremely special guest and a friend of mine. Hello, I'm Jamie Gearing, author of Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber. How are you doing, Jamie? It's good to see you again. Great, and really great to see you as well. It's been a while. Yeah, well, you and I met a while back uh, when we were doing a project for Audible about some guy named the Unabomber. I don't know, some clown. <laughs> some so, guy named Ted, yeah. Yeah, some guy named Ted. and. You know, we we connected and we uh, we interviewed you for the project, which was called "Where the Devil Belongs," and it's on Audible, and it's a great series, and it goes really in depth with interviews of the people who knew Kaczynski, like yourself, and the people who were victimized by him, which they were all extraordinary people, and. Also, the investigators who investigated and eventually locked him up. So it's so great to have you here uh, to talk about your new book. So tell me when you decided to write a book about your <clears throat> infamous next door neighbor. <laughs> so since Ted Kaczynski's arrest in 1996, I mean, I was only 16 when he was arrested. Um, but I have always wanted to write this book. And in 2017, I started to get serious about it. I started to outline, I started to write down my own memories. And then in 2018, as I was writing, I was approached by um, a production company who did a documentary that ended up being on Netflix called Unabomber in His Own Words. And as I was telling the producers my stories and my memories from childhood, they kept saying, you have to finish this book. You have to tell your story. It is so incredible. This perspective has really never been shown before. Growing up next to a serial killer, the childhood memories, the fondness that you 
felt towards him and how that changed through the years, it's such an interesting perspective and um, you have to finish. And so they really did, you know, inspire and prompt me and they're huge supporters of the book now as well, just like you, Jim. Um, And so I really, I just completely dedicated myself to finishing it and getting it published. And here we are. So one of the things that you mentioned, though, was your fondness for him as a kid. And obviously, as you said, that changed over time. Why would you be fond of him as a kid? What was it that made you fond of your next door neighbor? So, you know, I write about this in the book and it's still unclear to me if Ted Kaczynski really um, you know, was being kind and neighborly in those early years, or if it was just part of his methodical cover, really, you know, trying to portray himself as this normal next door neighbor. But when I was little, about four years old, this is the first memory that I have of Ted, is he came over to my house <clears throat> and he brought me a gift. He had hand painted some rocks for me. And I, I was so excited and, um, you know, it was, it was very kind of him. It was thoughtful. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of him in those, in those very early years. I thought he was strange. Um, he looked very odd. He smelled odd. You know, he was the, the man of the mountains that lived next door, but he was just Ted or, you know, we, we referred to him sometimes as Teddy And when I was a baby, of course, I don't remember this, but he would come to our home for dinner. He held me as a baby. Um, My own mother remembers him as being very kind and shy, even um, very reserved. And, you know, again, as the years progressed, for obvious reasons, he was right in the middle of his um, campaign of terror. He did become much more frightening. His visit, definitely had changed and you know he would come knock on our door and ask what time it was even what day it was and if I was home alone and my you know and my parents were down at the mill which was close but not close enough um I would hide I would hide in the closet I I I would I was terrified of him so Ted Bought some land uh, that was uh, in a corner of your property, right? Yes. So my grandfather um, had purchased a ranch in 1948 with about 9,000 acres. And in 1971, he had decided to sell a parcel of his land, 1.4 acre. And he ended up selling it to none other than... Ted Kaczynski and David Kaczynski. And so from 1971 until 1996, Ted was our neighbor and our family's ranch land surrounded his property. So why that particular piece of land? Why did your grandfather decide to sell that parcel versus something way out on a corner somewhere? So that specific parcel was not needed for his ranching operations. It was kind of on the edge of his um, of his ranch land, and and it was just he was in need of a little bit of cash, and it was a, an easy piece to subdivide and sell. Got it. And <clears throat> how far was this 
from where your house was built. You lived in a log cabin, right? Yes. So my parents built their log cabin, late 70s, early 80s. And the cabin, our cabin was um, just less than a quarter mile from Ted Kaczynski's plot of land. Mm. And at the time that he was building, it was even more isolated and rural. There were hard, you know, there was hardly anybody out there. And I'm sure that was appealing because that was the lifestyle he was looking right. for. And when when you lived there, like was it uh, you know, I mean, was your childhood pretty lonely? I mean, did you get to have friends? Uh, you know, <laughs> You're, it didn't seem like you have, if you're on a 9,000 acre ranch, doesn't seem like you have a lot of nearby next door neighbors. Yes, there aren't very many. And we were close to four miles away from town, as we call it. When I, when I say town, it's Lincoln, Montana, tiny town of approximately a thousand residents. I mean, the, um, the school is kindergarten through high school. Uh, there was like 12 people in my class. I mean, it is teeny tiny. Luckily for me, I had cousins that were close to my age. And so they were my best friends. Otherwise, I think I would have been even more lonely. But you know that I think that does play into why I felt that fondness for Ted as well, because it was kind of lonely being out there. I mean, I had the cats and I had, you know, some imaginary friends as a really little kid. And, you know, seeing somebody was exciting. And so that probably is part of those like endearing feelings that I felt towards our strange neighbor in those early years. Got it. And so as you're writing the book and as you're being interviewed for Where the Devil Belongs that we did together, obviously this brings up some some nice memories of your childhood and and even though you may not have had a lot of neighbors, you really enjoyed yourself there in the middle of nature and and your parents must have because they chose that as a place to raise you. What is it, what is it like sort of reliving that um, in such great detail? Uh, so that part of it, writing about my childhood and that um, just the ability to escape into nature and, uh, you know, a, 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 a opportunity that many are not afforded was really an incredible part of writing this and, you know, reliving the memories of my late, with my late father, you know, um, horseback riding, being on an isolated mountain lake and all of those things were really beautiful. And as I was writing, uh, you know, those particular scenes and reliving that part of my childhood, that question really did come up in the theme of my book. So, you know, how could, how could these woods nurture and inspire me so much in such a beautiful way and darken my neighbor so much, you know, that the isolation particularly. Well, um, perhaps uh, your neighbor was a little dark to begin with. <laughs> Uh, yes. might be something have something to do with but we'll get back to that later yes so, so you your um your first memories of him when he gave you this these painted rocks and didn't he give you a doll one time too he gave me um i'm told that he gave me a tea set and that he also um actually hand carved a cup for me oh. a wooden a wooden cup when I was a baby, 
um, you know, kind of as a, mm. a, a baby gift, I suppose. Interesting, because uh, hand-carved wooden things became very important to the Unabomb investigation, didn't they? Absolutely. And, you know, just the juxtaposition of, again, those same hands that methodically created bombs also were, you know, hand carving this beautiful gift made for me. I mean, again, it's just <laughs> going through this. It's such a theme is, you know, the the different chasms of this killer. Right. Well, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, and this is something that uh, that I try to get people to understand in, in my work as a behavioral analyst is that labels that we put on people sometimes um, actually help us miss the offenders that are right in front of us. In other words, we you mentioned earlier when we were talking offline about, about a particular child sex offender and you called him a predator. And a lot of people do call them predators. The only problem is that most of those people who call them predators see predators as lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But in fact, many of them and the ones that are good and skilled at grooming, not only grooming their targeted victims, but parents and guardians and the entire community, those people are able to throw everybody off their scent by acting like good people. And it's really important for people to know that human beings have multiple facets. We're now learning from you about a facet of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, a man who terrorized this nation for 17 years with bombs, killing people and maiming people, extraordinary people, wonderful people who are trying to do wonderful things for the, for the human race. And he tried to kill them. But at the same time, he could do something, quote, sweet and kind to a little girl who lived just next door. Now, that just really puts an exclamation point on the fact that people have multiple facets to them. And you can't put any person in one particular pigeonhole because, you know, every person was a child at some point. It was a son or a daughter. And many of them are fathers and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and cousins, and they have relationships. And if we label people with monster and predator words, then we're not going to be looking for the ones that are right in front of us, smiling in our face. And as you said, you're not sure whether Ted's interactions with you and your family were part of a cover-up of what he was really doing or whether he actually had some good human emotions. I mean, you know, there are stories from his mother about, you know, nice things, but there's always also stories about him being completely detached after he went in the hospital when he was a baby and coming back and just not wanting to be held and doing nasty things to her. Like, pulling out the chair from under her when when she was trying to walk to to sit down at the table with a a pot roast in a in a hot tray and you know things like that so there were seemingly very nasty things that he did but you're also giving us the perspective of some nice things that he did so go ahead 
Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that. I, Jim, you're 100% correct. And um, it's funny, I just read a quote from Carrie Rawson, uh, BTK's daughter, and she had said something like, you know, maybe part of the reason that we're not catching serial killers as quickly as we should is because they're very capable of blending in and looking normal. And you're right, we're looking for these monsters. But mm-hmm. many times they're your neighbor, they're a father, they're a grandfather, they're seemingly normal people. And of course, Ted was very eccentric and strange, but he was living this perceived peaceful off-grid lifestyle. Right. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And, you know, and it's a it's a valuable lesson. Both of those lessons, what, what BTK's daughter said and what you have saying about Kaczynski, they're they're true. And, you know, I know that his brother, you know, had had very strong love and loving feelings for his for Ted. Um, but at the same time, he he at some point really thought that Ted might be the bad guy um, and he turned him in. But he turned him in thinking that it was going to rule him out. There were there were something like twelve hundred and or fourteen hundred other suspects that were also turned in at the same time. So he, he though was not I, alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He though, when he when he did, you know, end up contacting the FBI, knew that there was basically a 50-50 chance that Ted was the Unabomber. And so I, I just can't imagine really, and especially knowing David now, how difficult that decision had to be knowing how much he loved his brother and still loves his brother having, having to face something like that. Right. Well, you know, it's, it's understandable, but I know that because of, you know, the investigators who he interacted with how many times and his lawyer as well. I also talked to his lawyer, um, how many times they, sort of had to go back and and get more and more and more information. And each time um, David was trying to, was hoping that this, this is going to rule him out. This is going to rule him out, but it didn't. It actually yeah. eventually ruled him in uh, with the work of, of supervisory special agent James Fitzgerald and forensic linguistic profiling. But there came a time at some point that your feelings towards your next door neighbor started to change. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, as mentioned, you know, in the nineties, early nineties, when Ted would come to the home, I, I would start to really be fearful of him. And it was probably a combination of me understanding more of the world around me. And then also just, him specifically. So his cadence changed. He was more task driven. He, his appearance had changed. I mean, his 
clothing was more torn and tattered and soot on his face and more emaciated looking. So his appearance had changed his, you know, like I said, his cadence had changed. And, um, you know, I would, I would hide and wait until he would finally leave. And then as he would walk over the hill back to his cabin, I would peer through my bedroom window just to make sure he was really disappearing. He was really leaving. And then later on, um, many times as a teen, I would take walks in the woods by myself. And the summer prior to Ted's arrest, him and I actually almost collided in the woods. And both of us being alone were shocked to see another person. But that was the first time I remember really being terrified. And Mm. again, I'm a young woman in the middle of the woods by myself with a stranger. I mean, that was just, you know, that could be alarming, but it was more than that. It was this just intuitive terror that I felt just where the, the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you know that something isn't right. Hmm. And, um, you know, so we, we said hello to each other, um, as normal as I could possibly be and turned around both of us going, um, our opposite ways. And I ran home that day. I mean, looking over my shoulder the entire time, making sure that he wasn't behind me. So this, this chance meeting in, in the woods, this was a year before he was actually arrested. Yes. So that's 16 years into this bombing campaign. So that's, you know, he has killed a number of people. You actually, as a teenage girl, almost ran into a serial killer in the middle of the woods. I mean, when you think about it in terms of what he was actually doing, that's a, a really scary prospect. It is really scary. And, um, you know, not only is he at the height of his reign of terror, he, you're right. He's been killing and maiming for years, writing in his journals of these innocent people, calling them experiments. And he's completely isolated. Um, it, it is, it's really scary to think about that. And then to know as well, what he was doing in those woods, he was many times testing bombs. And, and, you know, I just think back, like, what, what if I would have come up to him in those woods when he was doing something like that? I mean, the um, scenario could have been much different. But, you know, again, it was lucky for me that it was so close to home. Right. And, you know, you mentioned being in the woods and, and, you know, what he might have done if he was testing it. Did you ever hear bangs or or bombs going off or anything like that? Yes. My father and I would um, definitely hear loud booms, bangs in the woods, but it was so muffled by the pines that it was difficult to truly discern. Uh-huh. And, and I thought maybe it was gunshot, um, but my dad was like, no, I just, I think it's something different. But then we would, you know, stand and be completely stoic and quiet and try to hear for another, listen for another one. And it wouldn't come. 
Right. Which, in fact, is actually a greater indication that it's a bomb and not hunting. So that's crazy. That's hard. That's really difficult to, you know, discern. You know, I'm sure that he, I know that he had another cabin hidden up somewhere else into the woods and, and had some bomb materials there. Uh, and he probably tested them far away from, from his cabin so that it would be difficult to figure out. Yeah, he did. He had another cabin in McClellan Gulch, which was about a mile away from our home. So to, to hear, you know, something, um, happening that far away with all the pines is, is pretty difficult. Yeah. And he also hunted for his own food, right? Yes, he did. And uh, there was an incident regarding him and that hunting rifle, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Um, Another um, example, I I suppose, of terror in our own backyard that, you know, I, uh, again, I had heard little snippets of this story after Ted was arrested, but it wasn't really until writing Madman in the Woods that I really got to the complete truth of, of it. And um, there was a day that my little sister and my stepmom were in our woods on our property and they were reseeding some ground. My little sister was two at the time. So that would have been 95 again, right before Ted Kaczynski's arrest. And while they were in the woods um, doing their chores, my stepmother felt a presence. She felt something in the woods that it, it was, you know, it felt stealth, it felt ominous. She thought she felt danger and she thought it was potentially a mountain lion. They're in the middle of rural Montana. That's definitely a possibility. And she knew something wasn't right. So she grabbed my little sister and threw her in the truck and they left. And she didn't really give much more thought to that day until after Kaczynski's arrest, um, she was able to read some of the journals that were found in Ted's home. And in one of those journals, Ted is actually recounting that day they shared in the woods. And he shared isn't is a unique way of saying it, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I guess when I say share, I feel like he was always in his journal, seemingly writing to an audience. And so I suppose that's what I mean by shared. But yes, he was he was writing in his journal about that day and how he was looking at my stepmother and my little sister through the scope of his rifle and going back between mother and daughter. And he writes that it would be easy to take the little bitch out, but then the big bitch could get away. Or if I shoot the big bitch, then the little bitch would be left on the hill. And it was the first time that I realized how much danger we were in. Yeah, because, uh, and it would have been innocent on your part and part of your family members, but boy, if you stumbled onto something that could have exposed him as the Unabomber, the serial killer, 
the 17-year terrorist in the United States, um, yeah, he could have been extremely violent with you. And, and I'm so glad that didn't happen with any of your family members or yourself. Yeah. And Jim, honestly, I mean, that was, that was a very difficult thing to, to write about. And, um, but it wasn't the only thing that Mm. I, you know, that I found while writing this book. And there were many other examples of terror in our own backyard that just felt really, really brazen. And that's why our listeners should definitely get your book. And what I hear you actually narrated the audible version, the audio book. I did. I did just finish the narration for Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber, available on Audible, which was a really interesting um, experience. I actually had to try out to narrate it, (laughs) but clearly I got the part. That's awesome. And yeah, it's really great. So it's available now for down for uh, pre-order on Audible. That's cool. Well, uh, and when will that be available? Well, when will that be coming out? April 19th. Okay. And the hardcover book, the hard copy? The hardcover is also available April 19th. Okay, great. Well, what's really great is that you've also offered to send one of our listeners... Yes, an autographed copy of your book. I would love to send one of your listeners an autographed copy. They are beautiful. I just received them. Um, I have the art here. So this is the this is the paperback. So just envision so much prettier. (laughs) But yes, um, I am happy to share a autographed hardcover. Well, that's really kind of you. And we'll set it up. We'll we'll have some kind of a drawing for our listeners and uh, Patreon subscribers to see uh, who gets to win your copy of the book. Wonderful. And they should definitely also listen to Where the Devil Belongs, which is about the FBI's investigation for 17 years of the Unabomber. And you'll meet some other extraordinary people and I'm telling you, it's it, it was a it was a, an amazing educational journey for me, even though I was in the FBI at the time and good friends with Jim Fitzgerald, who was profiling the case. And and actually, we discussed a lot of the case elements during the time of the investigation. But I still learned so much more while I was doing this really amazing documentary series that that also featured our guest, Jamie Gehring, <laughs> and her experiences with the Unabomber, living next door to the Unabomber. And I hope that everyone will get her book and either listen to it or buy a hard copy of it and listen to the, the Where the Devil Belongs, the audio documentary series about it, because the details that we go into um, or just you can't find them anywhere else. And the, the perspective that you have of this incredibly prolific serial bomber, serial killer, um, well, nobody else has that perspective in the world. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. 
Yeah, thank you so much for allowing me to share it as well with your listeners. And I'm sure Francie, if she was here, not only would she have interrupted you a hundred times, but <laughs> she would have actually told you how you know proud she is that you are able to come forward and talk about this story because it's important. And you know, the more we turn these kinds of offenders into evil monsters, the harder they are to catch because that makes them have some kind of power above and beyond us. And they're not. They're human beings, all of them. And we need to look at them that way and understand that that their humanity is, is a given, but it's also a way to understand them and find them and catch them and stop them from doing what they're doing. So I agree. And I love that you're saying that because, you know, again, as as I was writing, I found myself personally, someone who has lived true crime and experienced a serial killer really having a hard time with the fact that he was so similar to us and and seeing his humanity in so many different places. So I think that we are very conditioned to look for the monster and it's important not to. Right, exactly. So thank you for giving us that very valuable perspective and we appreciate it. We wish you so much luck on your book and I hope that we get to do other projects together in the future. Absolutely, yes, All right. thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. And, you know, have a great day. And we'll be seeing you sometime soon. And to our listeners, thank you for listening and watching. This is Best Case, Worst Case, signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production produced by Francie Hakes, Josh Murphy, and Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Matt Gerbel. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba and hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, the number two, L, dot org.